I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello, you're listening to episode 13 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Dr. Gary McGraw. Gary is the Vice President of Security Technology at Synopsys. Gary quite literally helped create the field of software security. He is a globally recognized authority on software security and the author of several best-selling books on this topic. His titles include Software Security, Exploiting Software, Building Secure Software, Java Security, Exploiting Online Games, and six other books. He's also the editor of the Addison Wesley Software Security Series. Gary has also written over 100 peer-reviewed scientific publications, authors a periodic security column for search security, is frequently quoted in the press, and regularly speaks at major conferences. Gary holds a dual PhD in Cognitive Science and Computer Science from Indiana University, where he also serves on the Dean's Advisory Council for the School of Informatics. He also produces and hosts his own monthly podcast, the Silver Bullet Security Podcast, which I highly recommend you subscribe and listen to. Gary is also a self-described alpha geek and a pioneer in the field of computer security. However, Gary is also a big proponent of life outside of tech. He lives on a farmhouse in Virginia, collects art, plays several musical instruments, an experienced cook, and shares a hobby of mine, craft cocktails. In this episode, we discuss craft cocktails and a note to listeners to go to Gary's episode page on cybersecurity interviews for the liberal recipe, his ShmooCon keynote, the BSIM project, breakers as builders, leadership in InfoSec, cybersecurity in the media, government relations, the NASCAR effect, giving back to your community, and much, much more. It was an honor and pleasure to have Gary on the show. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Gary, thank you for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. Super pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, before we dig into uh, the depths of information security, there's one thing I caught on your website that I, I have to ask and, and follow up on. It says that you're a one an experienced cook with a great kitchen, which is a man, you're a man after my own heart. But you also said you've been doing craft uh, cocktails for over a decade and have an outstanding bar. Yes. So, what, what's your favorite craft cocktail that you make for yourself? The the house cocktail at my bar is called a liberal. Which is a Manhattan derivative, okay, and it's it's quite easy to concoct. It's it's uh, three quarters of an ounce, um, if you're an American, of uh, cast strength bourbon, three quarters of an ounce of the cheapest red vermouth you can find. I always use Martini and Rossi. Okay, excellent choice. And uh, one quarter ounce of unobtainium called Amer Pecan. The trouble with Amer Pecan is you have to go to France in person and get it and bring it back. See the, so I've been doing yeah, that for many years. The, yeah, the problem is now that I know where to get, I have to. I have to break in your house in Virginia. But I've been. It's been on my list of, uh, you know, cordials and and uh, aperitifs and amaros to try to get for years, and it's always been kind of the holy grail of. Uh, yeah, you had. You can go pick it up if you don't mind getting on a plane and going to France to get it. Uh, if it gives me an excuse to go to France, I'm not going to complain. So oh, I, I always have a supply on hand, and I've actually dropped some in some. Uh, high-end East Coast bars from time to time, and a little bit in San Francisco as well. So you can find uh, bottles of Americon that may have just m- miraculously appeared due oh, to me. Very good <laughs> to know. Okay. A lot to be looking at. So how, how did that develop? Because I have this interesting kind of theory that there's a lot of people that are good at information security are also good at cooking and craft cocktails because of that. You almost want to hack it and break it apart. Was that kind of your impetus of getting involved with cooking and cocktails? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I've been cooking all my life, and my mom was a good cook, and her dad was a great cook. So, you know, the idea of doing that is was, was just part of growing up. The cocktail thing happened when I traveled an absolute ton. You know, building my network and building Sigital up over the years meant a lot of travel. And when you travel a lot, you see these phenomena like the craft cocktail thing just 
blossom. And so I've been watching it and having great friends in the cocktail industry for, you know, over a decade. It's been really fun. And yeah, you can, you can try to reverse things and you can learn a lot. I know a lot about bartending now, but um, there are some drinks that are irreversible. They just do this magical thing where you taste it and you go, I can't break that down into its constituent parts. The liberal that I just told you the recipe for is one of those. Yeah, it's one. Of, it's it's funny. It's a beauty of at least with the craft cocktails. It's you can keep trying, and there's actually that kind of enjoyment out of it. And worse, worse comes worse, you get a little bit of a buzz afterwards too. So <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a book that I've been keeping for about a decade with hundreds of recipes and experiments and all the stuff I've been working on at home. Oh, so one cool. day maybe I'll share that with the world. Right now, it's just my private book. Yeah, I think uh, one of my pen testers is in the craft cocktails too, and we're always sharing ever Evernote cocktails that we're kind of working on at home and i think our wives think we're both crazy and hey guys it's, it's two it's tuesday what do you why is everything out of the bar but you know experiment yeah, because, because work yeah. yes it's science yes and yeah so i had the pleasure of seeing you do the the keynote at schmoocon uh this year in 2017 which i thought was great and um i there's a couple things i wanted to kind of dive into a little bit about it but one of the things that I, you mentioned, you said you really got into security because you said software sucks. So maybe kind of, if you can explore that a little bit and really kind of your impetus of getting into, um, you know, getting into security and what was so sucky about it that you felt you had to fix? Well, you know, I've actually been a software guy for for forever. I, I started um, computing in 1981 with an Apple II Plus and computerized two high schools and taught the teacher, the math teacher, what Pascal pointers were and stuff like that. So when I went to college, I wasn't, re I, I wasn't interested in learning about computers and I did philosophy. Then I went to grad school in computer science and got a PhD and that required a lot of coding and a lot of learning of new tech. So I was one of Doug Hofstetter's students. And out of that, um, the reason I was, uh, at Indiana was because of Hofstetter, but there was a huge programming languages um, set of people there led by a guy named Dan Friedman, who's just absolutely fantastic. And it was a scheme-based shop. I don't know if you're a programming languages guy. So I was steeped in functional programming, and I wrote my thesis code in scheme. Um, when I got my job at Sigital, when there were seven people, the job was to take a look into some uh, a DARPA grant that they had won to do computer security. And, you know, so I started getting into computer security and thinking about how to adopt this technology from software safety to software security, basically. Um, but the field wasn't named, just fault, just fault injection stuff. Uh, and at the same time, Java came out. That was 1995. So as a programming languages guy, I, of course, got Java immediately when it was still, I guess, probably in beta and started playing around with it. And it was very clear that, that, you know, they were making claims about security. I was wondering how in the world a programming language could be secure. Um, and so, you know, I got into Java security at the same time I was looking at what was going on on the edge of computer security, which was basically they were building firewalls. And it became very apparent to me that this notion of protecting the broken stuff from the bad people by putting a thing was really silly that instead we just had to build stuff right. And that was 1996. So, you know, it was all of those things coming together, making me look at the field and go, wow, computer security is messed up. Yeah, and it's it's been completely fixed in the last 20 years because ah, it's now perfect. <laughs> yeah, I've been massively successful, huh? Yeah. So, so at least there's a field now of software security because back then there wasn't. There were a few places you could look. There was the 2600 work. There was Aleph One smashing the stack for fun and profit. And there was some thinking about how you attack a piece of software, but it was very, very rudimentary and spread out and not really in the computer security literature written by scientists. Um, I'm happy to say that because of the spearheaded the work spearheaded by Ed Felton and his graduate students at Princeton, that changed around the late 90s. And I remember there were there was massive gnashing of teeth among the scientists saying, hey, you know, you guys broke Java and you talked about how to fix it, but we can't publish that as a science publication. 
And it turned out that those people were dinosaurs and needed to go. And the field um, changed in research, and then it began to change commercially as well, um, based on this notion of of building things right and breaking systems and describing how attacks work and all that stuff in the open literature. Why do you think there was such a resistance with inside that community to to take that approach? What was the kind of uh, what were they kind of holding on to? I think it was um, holding on to some aspects of thinking about cryptography and thinking about multi multi-level security and coming up with you know insanely complex things like the Corbus security model that nobody really understood even the guy who made it so um, it was a number of factors but you might just all call it all institutional momentum um, so when we young kids because I was a young kid in the mid 90s came along um, we just didn't put up with any of that, and we, we ended up changing the field, I think, for the better. Definitely. And I, I, at some point, I, it must have led into the idea to write a book about it uh, some years later, but you did write the book, Software Security, Building Security In. Yeah, and that it, was many years later. <laughs> the first book on software security was one called Building Secure Software that came out in 2000, six years before software security. Oh, right. Yeah. And and. and you know, I've, I've kind of some of those similar touch points. While myself, I was never a, a good programmer and, and went more towards uh, things I can touch, I guess. <laughs> you know, routers, hard drives, and, and taking more of the infrastructure and, and data approach to security. But uh, I did have my, my time with security in the 90s and the, and the kind of dot, dot com first phases and try to do that and quickly see, you know, we would, we would write things and then see... I spent months doing something and find something else was automated and able to do it by the time we were done with a project. So I think I got a little bit <laughs> held off, but there was also, yeah, it was always that idea of, you know, ship product, get, get something out there. Yeah. Don't think about the security, um, which always, you know, in the back of my mind, I always had a, a kind of or, anxiety. Or we'll do security later, or we can protect it with a firewall. Um, and that persists to this day. I mean, the idea that you can protect your applications with a web application firewall is just insanely stupid and wrong. Um, but it persists and people buy those things and, you know, there's a whole market for that. So, you know, all it shows to me is that you don't have to be right to sell security stuff, but I still would like to be right. Yeah. And it was, I think it was on one of, one of your podcast episodes recently talking about, you know, you know, kind of testing in security instead of building it in. And I, we certainly see that with a lot of folks where they're saying, even to that to that extent further, say, well, you know, we can do a web app pen test, figure out what's broken, or we, let's just skip that and just throw a you know, web application firewall in front of it, and we'll just ignore all problems. Um, and there still seems to be that, that you know, <laughs> mindset that... Both of those are equally misguided attempts. I mean, I, I do think you should do pen testing, but if that's the only thing you're doing for software security, then you're going to find lots of problems and it's going to be expensive to fix them late in the life cycle. So, you know... My view is the earlier in the software development lifecycle you can put security ideas, the cheaper it is going to be to do things properly. Um, and you can't skip any parts. So, you know, maybe having a WAF is a good idea for a brand new attack that you didn't anticipate. And you can put some blocking rules while you refactor your code. But that seems like a pretty silly way to spend money. Um, when it comes to other things that you could invest in to do better software security. Yeah, it's, it's essentially like trying to bubble wrap a car and then giving the keys to the drunk to drive home. It's just you're really not getting at the core fun, uh, foundational problem of there's there's an issue there that's unresolved. <laughs> and, um, you know, with, with how I guess what I'm trying to figure out is after, you know, 20, 30 years of, of software development, how I, or sometimes when I still see it is that there still is a bit of a a challenge getting people thinking about, software development life cycles with security built in as yeah. opposed to, you know, just, just, you know, trying to get security right done the first time and as part of the cycle, as opposed to the bolt on, do you yeah. think that's happening more because of institutional education or it's just not being taught? Where's the, where's the gap? So it's, I got a complicated answer to that. So bear with me. Fair um, enough. I, I believe that we've been making great progress, especially in the last 10 years on software security. And as an example, I can tell you that the BSIM project that we use to measure software security initiatives is now directly impacting the work of 272,782 developers. That's not four. You know, 272,782 developers is a lot. But the real question is, well, 
how many developers are there out there? And I think if you stand back, squint, make stuff up, sacrifice a goat, you find out that there are about 8 million developers. So if you divide 272 million, let's just do that. Sorry. If you divide 272,000 um, by 8 million, what do you get? I, have to, I would have had to write all that down. I'm, I, I'm, I cannot do math. On well, you get, you get 3%. 3%, so, yeah. <laughs> 3.4. So, so we're, we have a long way to go um, to, to cover you know, so, so all of the developers, but we've made some great progress. Yeah, and it's it's funny ha having done um, application testing. It's always the, it's it's getting the developer sometimes in that in that mindset too that you know from security people were not there to attack their code and they feel somewhat defensive at times. So I think there's certainly things that can happen on the security side of, of maybe yeah. softening the blow of our criticism. Not trying to come yeah, off no, as you're criticism. Right. You, yeah, you're right. If you smack somebody with a stick when you meet them, they're not going to want to see you again. Um, and so what I found is that developers out there would really, really like to do the right thing. And if you come to them and you say, I'm here to help you do the right thing, I'll teach you how to do that right so that no stick beating happens, they really react incredibly well to that. And a person who helped me learn that lesson is Mike Howard you know, from Microsoft, who did a great job with many, many developers over there getting software security to be part of the culture of development. And that's really the key to making software security work. Definitely. And one of the, you know, from some of my notes from your ShmooCon talk, one of the, the a great like little uh, quote that I, I stole off uh, your speech there, but I, you know, I thought it was pretty good, that good breakers make good builders. Um, and that idea that you really have to let people have that creative space, not only in development, but to, to kind of turn around and try to break what they've developed. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe explore fact, that a little bit more. Absolutely. I, I think if you don't know how systems break, it's very hard to build an unbreakable system because you don't anticipate what crazy things people will do to make your software misbehave. Um, so, for example, I mean, this is a stupid canned example. But imagine you have an input field that's supposed to take a name. And as an attacker, I just put in two terabytes. And the developer looks and says, wait a minute, how could you possibly put two terabytes into a name field? No one has a name that long. Right. <laughs> and, and there you have the difference between a, a developer's mindset, which is like, who on earth has a two terabyte name? And why would anybody ever try to put one of those in this little field versus an attacker who's like, Oh, it's a name. That's supposed to be short and only ASCII. Let's see what happens when it's really long and binary. <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, that's a very simple, contrived example, but that's the sort of thing that I mean when I say that if you know how systems break, you can build them better. Now, I will say this. I used to believe that we should try to teach every developer how to attack software so they knew it. Um, and I wrote a book called Exploiting Software in 2004 with Greg Hogland. That was the first book in the world about attacking software in that way. But it turns out that that idea doesn't really fly because most developers aren't very good attackers and teaching them how to do that doesn't help them so much. So we don't really want to teach developers. We want to teach architects. We want to teach security architects. We want to teach um, you know, people that are designing systems to think about security. And then we want to enhance security developers or developers who know a little bit about security um, with some people who know how to attack systems, um, both in code review, design review, and also penetration testing. So it's a little bit complicated what I just said, but I hope it makes sense. No, it does. And it's, it's, I think, kind of demonstrative that, you know, with security, it's, it's a team effort. <laughs> There's no one area that does it's not always just the security guy or the, the dev people it's it's everybody really has to kind of own part of the process and sometimes that doesn't always happen culturally within organizations um that's that's right yeah that's exactly right and one of the other things that that i thought was interesting from your, your schmookon talk you know you talked a little bit about you know yes do the research and be theoretical theoretical but also balance it out with what happens in the real world uh, and, and you know of, what's you know what's funny, Doug? I was actually making the opposite point. <laughs> okay. Because the people at ShmooCon, who are all very good people, are, you know, generally speaking, hacker types. And they're 
they're kind of just like, um, let's break stuff first and let's figure out how stuff works by breaking it in. And they call themselves researchers with quotes around the word research. Yeah. Whereas I'm a researcher, meaning I have a PhD and I'm a scientist and I used to do, you know, lots of research for DARPA and NSF and all those guys. And my point to the researchers with air quotes around them is, hey, you guys, science is a good thing. You should enhance what you're doing with some science. Just the way science, sometimes you criticize, needs to get more hands-on and, and break some real systems to figure out what's going on. Um, so we need the best of both worlds. But really for the ShmooCon audience, I, would, I, I was trying to get to the point of, hey, there's science, there's a literature, there's people that have been doing this for years. Go figure out what they've been doing before you just willy-nilly start throwing rocks. <laughs> right, right. And I also really like the idea that you emphasize you know, kind of being patient. Um, it seems to be almost an adversarial concept at times now with we have you know, rapid development life cycles of products and things getting out there. But sometimes you have to let the, the kind of noise play out long enough before you can you kind of see everything. Has that been – do you think that's more important now um, or is that always just a fundamental that you know, we really always have to be patient when it comes to developing security? Wow, that's a really good question. I've never really thought about it um, like that. But – I think it's more important now, and for the reason that you stated in your question, as we, you know, rush off the cliff towards Sec DevOps or DevSecOps. I don't remember what order people put it in. I think it's Sec DevOps. <laughs> yeah, um, we have to make sure that we don't forget the fundamentals of software security. Like, you need to do design analysis. You need to train the developers how to write secure code. Um, and not just, well, we automated code review and we automated some black box testing, so surely we must be done. Um, so though that may work for very silly web applications, that does not work for much more important code that may do things like control the temperature of our house or um, the way our car drives itself. And so um, I worry that if you just get caught up in the speed of a solution and you don't think, well, what do we really know about software security and what's missing in this new flavor of the day that, um, that we're being impatient in the wrong way? Um, so that's one answer. Just to you know, give you a slight different tack, what I meant by patience when I was talking about that was – don't expect to get rich super quick with some instant solution in security. Um, security is hard work. It takes years to build something that actually works properly and scales and can be used by millions of people. And so the idea that you're going to like invent some sort of silver bullet and become a multi-jillionaire um, in technology doesn't apply very well in security. And that, that means you need to be patient. Yeah, that's. I think that's the difficult thing now, where we're seeing the, you know, I'm, I'm good or bad or otherwise. I'm heading out to RSA in a couple of weeks, and just, <laughs> uh, you know, you just see the the amount of attention that's getting. And look, cyber is a is a is a hot topic now, and the amount of VC funds that are going into it. So I think there's the culture there that, hey, you know, that this is a gold mine. There's kind of a gold rush to it, but I think it's it's very frothy and bubbly right now. Yeah, um, and. You know, I, I will say this too. I, I've spoken at RSA for the last 12 years in a row. This year, they did not accept my talk, which I found just astonishing. Um, but I don't really care because I talk to bigger audiences all over the place that are more important. What and, was the? If I could, what was what was the topic? Uh, the topic was some work that I haven't published yet. Mm. Um, that's a study of CISOs called the CISO Project, which is very similar to the BSIM only for CISOs. And it's incredibly interesting and fantastic work, if I do say so myself. The CISOs that have seen it so far are just kind of super pleased about it and find it incredibly helpful. But I don't find it surprising at all that the sec DevOps, you know, flavor of the day kids that are doing software security at RSA these days didn't get it or don't get it. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there's a real danger with this froth to go after the shiny bits and forget to do the real work of security and think about changing cultures, um, what it means to enable security in a 380,000 person organization. You know, 
what, how much is tech, how much is culture, how much is changing procedures, um, how can you report what you're doing to the board? I mean, you know, let me just put it, put it straight. The board does not give a damn how many th packets your firewall blocked or how many security alerts you, you know, looked at and crossed off your list. They just, they don't care. They just wonder whether the corporation is properly protected and is doing the right things. And I think that, you know, in some sense, this dialogue or this, this, uh, what would we call it? This narrative about advanced persistent threats and, you know, super CICD uh, automation um, makes us forget the reality of security. And uh, reality is important here. Yeah, and I think, and, and I'll, I'll use you as a sounding board for my new uh, Sermon on the Mount that I've been trying to get out to people that, you know, I think that the, the thing that I keep seeing is a consistent, I would say, problem within information security now is kind of that lack of leadership um, because people aren't taking that kind of holistic view within organizations to try to change culture and align it with, to kind of to your point, to what the board's saying, where we're still seeing a lot of CISOs that have reporting duties that are uh, compartmentalized within an IT world. And yes. we're talking about business and risk, which yes. is the problem. And that yes. seems to be the big writing on the wall. And I'm like, why are we not talking about this? Doug, you're exactly right. And that's what the CISO project is about. And hilariously, but not surprisingly, RSA doesn't get it because, you know, they're just trying to peddle stuff. So so I, I do think there is some strong leadership in computer security. And I think a lot of it, it comes from academia. And there's some exceptionally great people that we should be paying attention to that we already know about, like Matt Blaze and Steve Bellavin and Ross Anderson and Avi Rubin and Ed Felton, you know, kind of this group of people that have taken a scientific approach to security and have been talking about it in a very sane fashion for, in many cases, over 20 years. You know, so if anybody who's listening to this wants to know what the best book in computer security in the world is, it's Ross Anderson's book, Security Engineering. And if you haven't read that book, you don't really deserve to be in the security field anymore. Um, stop, go get the book and read it. <laughs> and then we'll be making some forward progress. And one of the things I've, I've heard you talk about and also write on too is kind of the NASCAR effect. In, uh, in information security. Can you explain a little bit about that and what some of the challenges are with, with that concept? Yeah. I mean, the NASCAR effect is meant to be a pithy way of describing this myopic overfocus on the attack of the day or the metal-faced, you know, blue-haired hacker boys with leather um, on and talking about, you know, this system broke in this spectacular fiery crash. Let's just talk about that a lot. Instead of um, getting meta on that and saying, well, what caused that system to break? Why is there a fiery crash? What can we do to avoid fiery crashes in the future? We just get all caught up in the kind of, you know, news at 11, um, spectacular fiery crashness of it all. And, and with that, too, I mean, obviously, it's been a, a newsworthy kind of year when it comes to cybersecurity of the past you know, 18 months or so. Do you think the media is getting it right? And if they're not, how can we within the industry uh, try to help message some of these uh, issues better? I don't think the media is getting it right these days. I think the media has gotten it right in the past. But I'm sorry to report that from my perspective, the media is completely and utterly broken. Um, and that what's left are these smoking hulks of maybe they'll phoenix themselves, but smoking hulks of media that, you know, just got so hit hungry they forgot what their job is. And the fourth estate, I think, failed us in the last election cycle politically. Uh, and that's just a political example. I think the same thing can be said for, um, for the technical world as well. Like I used to remember when guys would, you know, start out in a, in a small tech rag or on a uh, – a website, move their way up to a regional um, or, or national magazine, write for a while, get really good, get noticed, end up being picked up by the Wall Street Journal, and sometimes even end up on television. And it was a long slog. It took a decade. So by the time they got to the top of the heap, like Paul Festa did at, at, at the Wall Street Journal, they actually knew what they were talking about from a, a technology perspective. 
And that's helpful because then it's easier to call bullshit when you see it. Um, and reporters still want to call bullshit, but it's, it's you know, the, the cycle is so fast, it's hard to know what's true and what's not true anymore. Um, and science is not playing enough of a role in, in what we're doing. So sorry to, to have that thorny answer, but that's, that's really what I think. No, it was, it was unfair. I set you up for it because I, I shared some of the same views and, and I wanted to kind of get that out there. You know, it's funny. I grew up with my a, a my mother was heavily into journalism and, and helped shape a lot of my writing uh, through high school and, and growing up. And having a having a newspaper editor uh, edit your 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 papers for school is always a good <laughs> good strategy. I highly recommend most people do that. But does, she, does, does the blue pen still make you shudder? Oh, it was blue. Yeah, if I was like, it was just columns of just notes and crossouts. But you know, it made me think you know about communication and how to structure things, but also that, that skepticism in reporting that is sometimes uh, lost there. And you know, one of the other talks at Shmukan was from uh, Space Road, kind of talking about. You know, the idea that you know where everybody's all got their feathers ruffled right now that you know China Russia is going to take down the U.S. power grid and he brought up a good point that look little squirrels, squirrels, squirrels do, do it they do it all the time <laughs> and the fact that he's a, just just it's something I had never in in contemplating this it was just kind of the obvious question to ask and I think what's happening not asking more of these obvious questions is. Why would they do that? Like, what's the right. real reason? Don't they squirrels, want our... the squirrels hate us, man? Squirrels That's why they us. do it. But you know, for yeah. China and Russia, they they kind of need if they're going to keep hacking us as we're attributing it as much as we are, they kind of need the power on. So yeah. we can't. So it's 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 sometimes lost. But you did touch on one of the things about you know obviously there's been a, a politically charged uh, climate right now, yeah. um, and from I thought a really interesting takeaway I had from Shmukan too was that there was a, a big discussion, you know, there was an Ask the Feds panel, but there was a, a discussion about, and I think even Bruce was kind of going on his rant that say, look, there's a lot of policy that's being written at the state and federal levels about cybersecurity. And if we don't get involved, it's going to happen without us. Uh, we have yeah. to kind of step up to this. Yeah. And my concern is, you know, with the current political climate is, and it's not just the current administration, but, I mean, there's been things that have happened with the NSA that's created some distrust. There's been things happened with the FBI in San Bernardino and some of their remote search and seizures. Yep. But um, is, you know, how do we kind of get a, get over this gap? I mean, hackers have not traditionally had a great relationship with government and law enforcement, but it almost seems like now more than ever we need to work on this. Yeah, that's that's a profound question that I don't have a really good answer for. But I will tell you that both Bruce and I do get involved on in various things in Washington that are policy related that include, you know, the usual suspects including people from the NSA and the FBI and the the uh, guys who lost uh, all of the classified records. I guess that's the OPM. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, the and the DOJ and the executive branch, um, that's what we did during the last administration. I'm not really sure what's going to happen um, with the the new people. I mean, they seem insane, just to put it bluntly. So <laughs> how, how could they possibly get cyber right? Um, and the notion that Rudy Giuliani knows anything about cybersecurity just makes me laugh. I mean, it's so pathetic. Um, so uh, I don't have much hope for that. Um, but I do think that we will eventually have to deal with it as grown-ups. Um, the question is when. Do you think there's there's particular insertion points that can we could get involved in? I think one of the and I forgot if it was the NASA the Feds or from what Bruce said. You know, look and we all live in areas or you know in districts. You know, you have representatives. Is it reaching out to your local representatives and saying, "Hey, look, we're here. We'll be a sounding board. We want to get involved." Or is there other ways that People can try to maybe, you know, even putting aside some of the other larger challenges, there's things that, that can be done as a ground game to try to help. I, I don't know. I mean, the, in my view, as a software security expert, the government is at least five to seven years behind in software security. So if you look at what the multinational banks are doing or what large ISVs are doing or even what some healthcare companies are doing, they are worlds ahead, just years ahead of where the government is in terms of building security in. So I don't think we can look to the government to help with that. I think we should look to the government to learn from that. Um, And the question is, well, how does that happen? 
And I think the answer is, unfortunately, well, the government has to be willing to learn and to listen and to follow some science. Uh, and so who knows how it's going to be in the next few years. Yeah, that's definitely a challenge to get, get the government to learn at times. And, and frankly, when it comes to computer security, you know, everybody can say, well, NIST and all this framework is great stuff, but I don't think it's great. I think it's just kind of stating the obvious in an unusable fashion. <laughs> so seriously, so it, it I, there's nothing great about the NIST framework. It's more like, gosh, yeah, you should have gotten a high school equivalent degree. Duh. <laughs> and so uh, and so if that's kind of the apex of the, the product that we can expect out of the government, we need to do this ourselves. And in some sense, multinational corporations have been doing it themselves, and we've been making a lot of progress. That's 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 encouraging. Good. <laughs> And and when you one one other uh, Shmukan talk that I thought was actually not necessarily directly related to yours in, in a certain way, but um, it was called "Flailing is Learning." You know, first year of malware analysis, and and it was from a young woman who's in, in the field and was kind of getting getting involved with doing some malware analysis. Mm -hmm. And she brought up a good point that she said, you know, it's not always the best way to teach people that are coming into the field by just tossing them into the deep end um, yeah. and letting them kind of sink. And I think for, for maybe folks like you and myself that have been doing it long enough, that's the only way we learn. And unfortunately, <laughs> we, we don't know how to teach people anything else other than saying, you got to survive. That's how we did it. You know, we're going to get kind of old and crusty about it. But um, do you yeah. see that as still being kind of a problem or we, 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 we have to almost kind of change that mindset a little bit? Wow, that's really interesting. I never really thought about that. I mean, look, um, in some sense, security people are born. They're not created. Um, but in, it, it's this nature versus nurture thing. And, I, you know, obviously it's this weird 50-50 fractal mix. mix. We're never going to pick nature or nurture. It'll be a mix. But if you, if you look at the way security people think, I think that part of that is innate. Let me give you an example. I used to have this little slot race car track thing. It was an electromagnet run thing called an Aurora racetrack. I don't know if you had one of those or not when yeah, you were a kid, I did. but I took apart the car and figured out how it worked. And I, I was like, Oh, this is a little motor that, you know, uses the magnets to twirl the thing around and move the back tire. So what happens if we put a couple more wraps and make this, you know, electromagnet a little bit different than it is now? And it turns out what happens is you can make the world's fastest slot car. <laughs> And it doesn't take much extra copper to make it work better. So, so you know, I built a better car, and then I had to be careful not to press the button all the way down because the thing would just fly off the track and run into the wall across the room. So, But it would always win as long as you didn't press the button all the way down and fell off the track. And that kind of mindset is just – that's I, – I don't know where that came from. I mean, hell, I was just a little kid. Yeah, I, so, I took apart the VCR, and my attitude was, well, why wouldn't you take apart the VCR? <laughs> exactly. And your parents are like, well, can you put it back together? I'll try. Like, I don't know. <laughs> mm, I don't know. There's an awful lot of screws here. I'm not sure where they all go. So, so yeah, I mean, taking apart radios and stuff like that. So I think that there are people that – I think that's part of the attitude of, of not being afraid of how stuff works and whether you break something when you're trying to figure that out that may be very useful for um, people that are at the, quote, research end of security. Um, so that's one answer. But also, we have to realize that our field is professionalizing, and there's a common body of knowledge that everybody must have, the kind of stuff that the NIST framework covers or the CISSP thing covers. Um, and you know what the CISSP guarantees is that you're maybe a centimeter deep and a mile wide, which you know may or may not be useful. I mean, it also guarantees that you once had a hundred dollars. So those are two things that it guarantees. Mm -hmm. um, and and maybe that's what we need for some parts of our security uh, population. It's kind of like medicine. Everybody does not have to be a brain surgeon. Um, and heck, if Ben Carson can become a brain surgeon, I should pick a different <laughs> discipline. But you know, everybody doesn't have to be a surgeon. Everybody doesn't have to have a specialty. We need some general practitioners. We need some nurses. We need some emergency room technicians. We need some people to ride around in ambulances and be first responders. 
Um, and we need all those things. And just like we need all those things in the medical domain, we need all those things in security as well. All the way from security guards um, and people who watch glass in a sock to people who design the next generation of payment systems that's secure and, you know, based on super modern crypto. So, uh, you know, there's no pat answer one way or the other. There will still be some kind of people that the only way they learn is you throw them in the pool, and we still need those people. But we also need the people that can go take a college course or two and pass the CISSP exam and are happy to sit in a sock and, you know, watch class. So that's it. Once again, the answer is a little subtle, but I think that's the reality of the situation. Sure. And, and when you kind of, uh, and sorry, I'm, I'm sure you've had people that you've developed over time or, or worked with people in kind of a mentoring role, but do you start to see there's particularly maybe some non tech skills that you think that are particularly important in information security that may be overlooked or not emphasized enough? Yeah. Communications is an obvious one. I mean, Every aspect of a professional job has three parts. It's got a people part, it's got a process part, and it has a technology part, right? Mm -hmm. so, so you can't ignore any of those things. You need to understand how to communicate both up and down from where you sit, um, how to make things simpler and how to make them more complicated, uh, depending on who you're talking to. Um, you need to be able to... Uh, figure out how to automate what you're doing and build a process around what you're doing so that you're not just creatively doing smart guy stuff all the time because smart guy stuff doesn't scale. So that's process. And you really need a deep understanding of how technology is built, um, including design level stuff, uh, in my view, to be super accomplished in this field. And I think that if anything, we've ignored the design aspects of um, of security engineering for far too long, and that's going to be what really bites us in the in the butt as we move forward, um, especially if we adopt things that say, well, we're just going to look for known bugs in JavaScript or whatever, uh, and we forget about the fact that half of the defects that lead to hacks are design flaws. Mm -hmm. Right, and I think I recall from uh, one of your recent podcasts too, talking about you know what the design flaws versus. Um... I'm trying to think of how, how you stated it before, but that bugs, bugs, bugs. yeah, bugs versus design flaws. Um, yep. And I thought that you know it really kind of resonated with me because I hadn't hadn't taken that moment to just look at it that clearly. Ah, there's there really is a difference. Um, there there really is, and there's really not enough material available to um, security professionals, even ones who care like yourself about well, what is a flaw? How do you find them? What do we do about those? Can we automate any of that? I mean, we're really just getting started on that sort of thing. And so, you know, I built the, I helped to found the IEEE Center for Secure Design to do just that, to focus some attention on flaws. Now, I'm not sure if the thing really is moving along the way I want it to, because I've been, you know, busy with acquisition stuff at mm -hmm. Sigital and, and now integration stuff. But I can tell you that the report that we wrote in the beginning about what are the top 10 flaws and how do you avoid them is incredibly valuable work for even for people who have been doing security for years because it helps to put some more emphasis on the design aspects of this uh, security engineering problem that we're faced with. Gotcha. And um, before we finish up, one of the things that was kind of the, the last point, I think, in your, in your talk that I want to go back to is you're talking about being passionate and really caring about what you do, but also, um, you know, kind of giving back. So there was kind of two sides of the same coin that you really have to love what you want to do, but also be kind of altruistic about it. And I know there's been, uh, at least from what I saw on your, on your site, there's a lot of phil philanthropic efforts that you have. Can you discuss yep. a little bit about that and what, why you, I would say, almost kind of promote that in a certain way as an information security professional? Well, I haven't really promoted it um, before until Bruce kind of asked me to um, at ShmooCon. And Bruce and I share a very similar philosophy about that. You know, Bruce has built ShmooCon into a very big and very successful thing with Heidi. Bruce and Heidi did it together. Um, and I've known Bruce for a really long time, and he's always been one to figure out how to help others um, and how to help others reach their potential. It's something that I hope I had a, some influence on, on him when he was really young about. And so when we were talking about what should I say to the ShmooCon audience, you know, what kind of talk do you want? 
um, on New Year's Day when he <laughs> asked me to do the keynote. <laughs> um, uh, he said, well, why don't you talk about that part where you sail in kilts? And I was like, huh, that's weird. I, I'll try to figure out how to work that in. And that's what led to the whole things I learned in the last 21 years mm -hmm. um, aspect of the talk. And then I pulled in some Zappa and some T-Corg has some boil as well. Um, but the, but the philanthropy thing is, is, is part of something I learned from my parents. I mean, they always were, um, very cognizant of people who were hungry of the fact that, you know, my dad was a very successful businessman and he wanted to give back in a very tangible way to his community, not really by spending on himself or his own church, but by helping people who didn't have enough money to eat. Um, and that's a lesson that I learned early and we've been, you know, consistently doing that through our career now, now that we've become sort of wildly successful, we're able to do more. And I think that's important. So, you know, that's that's why I talked about that in the in the Shmukon talk. I do want to emphasize that one of the things I said that's really important is to realize that even if you're just getting started in your career and even if you're financially strapped, um, there are ways that you can give back to your community that don't involve any money, that just involve time, not, not just, that involve time and involve energy and involve organizing around people in need in your own community, in your own county, in your own state. And so, um, and even in your own community of technical geeks, there are people in computer security that can use a hand up and can use some lessons and can use some help and may value your friendship. And so I think if we keep in mind all of those things, we all become better people and a stronger community for it. Um, and it, it also strikes me that the Shmukon community was so welcoming and so open to people with all sorts of crazy quirks because, you know, it's 2,500 people, many of them hardcore hacker people. Some of them have known each other for years, but there's a lot of noobs too. And the whole community was open and helpful and welcoming and all these things that Bruce has gotten his philosophy you know, worked into those people. And so I found that inspiring, and that's why I, I added that section to the talk, I think. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I'm, I'm, I'm always encouraged when other people kind of uh, promote that idea of, of giving. Um, it's funny, I do uh, some work with a, a nonprofit. I'm on the board of a, a group here in New York City called Her Justice that provides uh, – legal services to a lot of women and family needs in the New York City area. And it's, you know, a couple parts of that is you try to give, there, you know, really there's no cost to it to a certain degree. It's giving time and helping with fundraising efforts, but also right. trying to find things where, yeah, I can pull other professionals in and say, look, you know, we're, we're helping families and people that's, you know, whether somebody needs to help with a resume or translation services, there's probably something that you do that you don't realize that can really help somebody else find yeah. those outlets. Um, and it really kind of also makes you humble because it, you do forget and, and one of the benefits I think about being in our industry is that you do have, yeah, look, we have 0% unemployment. A lot of us can go around and bounce around and get jobs. Probably, it's, <laughs> well, you say if you're unemployed, you probably deserve to be. Yeah. In this. And those probably, they'll, they'll get still hired tomorrow, but it's, you know, it's, you, you, there's a lot of benefits to being where we are and you don't, you shouldn't forget that. Um, and, and having that humility to it is always, I think, a good, it makes you a better person and better professional. Yeah. So. And I think it's, it's super important in this political climate, regardless of your political persuasion, that we um, focus on community and we focus on making sure that the least of us in our own communities are not suffering. And if it's as simple as saying, well, you know, I live in the United States of America. Why are there hungry people in my county? Mm -hmm. You know, in my county's little. I got to do something about that. Um, that's one way to, to, to look at it. Um, and so, you know, a little bit of emphasis, a little bit of humility, a little bit of emphasis on sharing some of the luck or hard work or, you know, fortune that, that, that you have um, really goes a long way a longer way than some people realize. And so I would encourage everybody listening to figure out how to get involved. Even if it's the littlest thing, it'll make a huge difference in the world. Definitely. And, and now that you have, uh, as you said, you know, you've been patient and had that ability to be kind of successful, where can people find you now, now that you've kind of grown into a new organization? What are some of the things you're working on? <laughs> well, 
My official title is now vice president of corporate te- of yeah, that's that right. Oh, vice president of security technology at Synopsys, um, and so you will find me uh, on board this massive aircraft carrier of eleven thousand people that you know has a market cap of about nine billion bucks um, doing software security, and our software security division has a thousand people, so. It's called the Software Integrity Group, part of Synopsys, and we have plenty of work to do because, you know, the the security engineering situation, though we've made great improvements over the years, continues to be a challenge for everybody in our field. So I'm going to continue to work um, at Synopsys and work on Synopsys and try to build the strongest group of professionals doing software security on the planet. I think we're already there, but we've got plenty of work to do to to you know, make things even better and to increase our reach. So I'm going to continue to be to be doing that stuff. You can always find me on the net. I mean, it's really trivially easy to find me on the net because I've been on the net since 1985. The first bajillion hits on Google are really me. Um, but I have a website uh, called GaryMcGraw.com. You can check out if you're interested in some of the stuff I do, and in particular. Um, listen to some of the music I've been writing because that's an important part of my life too. Um, these days that helps to give me some balance. Uh, so, you know, basically I think the answer, Doug, is I'm going to do the same thing, only more of it. <laughs> You're lucky when you get to do that. That's always the, uh, the beauty of life, right? Yeah. And, and I'm super pleased to, to state with, you know, no equivocation that, you know, the idea of having your firm that you've been at for 21 years purchased by a big corporation can be daunting at sometimes but I am super pleased that um, that synopsis uh, is a great fit that sig has the same mission that we had at Sigital and that we've combined forces and, and basically doubled our staff size so that now we've got professional services and tools in the same domain and man is that powerful so I'm pretty excited about the whole thing even though there's tons of heavy lifting that remains to be done that's great, especially when you can uh, align the emissions on it uh, for between two organizations and can still continue to do what you, you love doing. Yep. Great. Well, Gary, I thank you so much for your time today. I enjoyed the conversation. I hope you did as well. I sure did. Thanks a lot, Doug. It's been fun talking to you. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.